Hello, this is Breaking the Shackles of Time. My name is Marcus Weekly. We are beginning a new chapter today in reimagining the podcast with a broader focus than just writing. Um, and I couldn't be happier than to welcome Dr. Kendall Cotton Bronk um, to this inaugural new reimagining episode. <laughs> um, in in terms of a brief introduction, um, Dr. Bronk is an associate professor of psychology in the Division of Behavioral and Social Sciences at Claremont Graduate University. Um, she's a developmental psychologist interested in understanding and supporting the positive development and moral growth of young people. To this end, she leads the Adolescent Moral Development Lab, which focuses on addressing primary questions around purpose um, and youth. Uh, her work has been funded by the Spencer Foundation, the John Templeton Foundation, the Fulbright Foundation. Um, we're going to go more in depth about uh, her specific research focus in terms of um, purpose in youth. But um, in addition to her substantive interests, she has also helped define and outline the parameters of something called the exemplar methodology, which we'll talk about more. And of course, teaches master's and doctoral classes on a range of topics at Claremont graduate university thank you so much for joining me thanks for having me marcus i'm uh, glad to, glad to be here great awesome um so before we jump in i just wanted to kind of give our listeners a bit of a background into this shift in the in the podcast what um what i'm thinking of doing now i'm moving away from just talking about topics around writing um the last episode on on transdisciplinary thinking which was supposed to be kind of an integration of transdisciplinary thinking and writing kind of inspired me, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in different epistemologies, um, ways of approaching knowledge and building knowledge, and how those transfer into kind of the tools of academic study, right, or even professional, um, professional studies. So how those transfers into theories, practices, assumptions, methods, um, and definitely different standards of like reliability, verification, the sorts of things that um, when we learn how to research the world or a phenomenon through a discipline, we, we might learn in practice and take for granted. Um, I'm, I'm interested in looking at those um, and folks that are doing work in different areas um, of academic research and, um, you know, having some good discussions around that and how and how, you know, the, what interesting elements we can bring to light in honing and focusing in on, um, you know, the background, the theories behind, you know, pursuits of, of knowledge and, and understanding. So um, for our episode today, that means we're going to look at psychology and um, positive psychology more specifically. Um, so I would like to start general and then move uh, move more specific, if that's okay. So, um, the first question, uh, Dr. Bronk, is you know psychology is a science, or you know often considered a social science. Um, what does typical psych psychological research do to study phenomena? That's a good question. Um, so, yeah, as psychologists, we're really interested in understanding human behavior. And um, in order to, to do that, we tend to use a mix of quantitative and qualitative research methods. Um, we also use, you know, experimental research and um, quasi-experimental research. So just a little bit about each of those quantitative research methods. 
um, often employ surveys. So you might go and administer a bunch of surveys to um, people to get a sense of, you know, how many people across the country, how many young people have a sense of purpose in their lives. Um, qualitative research more often relies on things like um, interviews or focus groups or observations. So um, if you wanted to understand not just how many people had purpose, but what a purpose looks like in the lives of young people, you might conduct interviews with um, some of those people who scored particularly high on your survey. So according to your survey, they, they score high and, and appear to have a purpose. And then you might go conduct an interview to understand what does that purpose look like? How does it, how does it shape their lives? So um, we often use quantitative and qualitative research methods uh, together to study um, a whole range of psychological phenomena. Great. Um, so, what's how are how how would you describe the the theory behind um, you know qualitative and quantitative study of human behavior? So, like, what are some of the major views about the world and acquiring knowledge that validates you know? those methods? What, a, what about, you know, asking via surveys or in interviews the way that you're approaching and then the, the types of answers and the way you deal with those answers? How, how are, you know, are you assured to get the types of outcomes you're looking for? Like clear, a clear picture of definitions of what human purpose looks like or um, in the survey case, I mean, maybe statistical data about, you know, whatever questions you're asking. Yeah, well, so you're looking for like an overarching theory that sort of underscores or, or explains how we think about gathering data on human behavior. Yeah, and 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 analyzing it. I mean, um, you know, like how are you assured that the answers you receive on the survey will will be validated in a way where you can, you know, with certainty say yes, this like X is occurring given what's been what we've gathered about the survey and then we can determine, you know, these other, like maybe next paths forward, like some other sort of treatment or um, something else, you know, just the reliability more or less. Um, how, how, how is that validated by the methods that are, that are used by psychology? Yeah, so I usually conduct qualitative research, um, and um, there's there's really a whole different sort of set of assumptions that underlie quantitative approaches versus qualitative approaches. There are philosophical assumptions and interpretive frameworks, and they vary between the two different approaches. So the idea behind quantitative approaches tends to be more of a, a positivistic approach. Um, and again, here I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying. I should note that, that there's, there's more than one approach. But yeah. um, most, mostly we think about the positivist approach, which is this idea that there is an objective reality that we can study and um, we can get at it by trying to sort of remove the researcher from the research process and trying to... Um, you know, use things like surveys and this kind of thing to get people to share their their picture of that reality um, with with the researchers. And um, with a qualitative approach, we actually don't assume there is one objective reality. Instead, there's really this assumption that there are multiple subjective realities, and that 
people's conception of how the world works and and why they act the way they, it, it really varies based on their own experiences. And so in qualitative research, we don't, like I said, we don't assume there is one objective reality. Instead, we assume there are multiple subjective realities. And this is why we go straight to participants and talk with them to try to understand what their subjective reality looks like. There's also kind of this um, assumption that the researcher is not necessarily um, absent from the research process, which is more of what the assumption that guides, you know, quantitative approaches. Um, in qualitative work, we recognize that the researcher is really like a, um, a almost one of the research tools, right? Because yeah. based on your own background as a researcher, you bring certain experiences to the data gathering process. Like, what kinds of questions are you even going to ask, and and um, what kinds of responses are you really going to pay attention to, and which ones might you not pay so close of attention to? What questions do you ask? What questions do you not ask? So we recognize that the researcher is a part, a very active part of the research process. Um, it's important for the researcher to, to try to sort of bracket their experience and set it aside in qualitative research because we really do want to understand the participants' conception of reality, not just the researchers. And so in qualitative research, we have a number of sort of tools or strategies or approaches that we can employ to um, to sort of bracket the researcher's um, experience so that it doesn't guide the entire, you know, so that we can really understand our participants' subjective experience of reality. Yeah. And that sounds like a challenge to me. Um, If, if you wouldn't mind, I would love to hear a bit more about what exactly, you know, like what you think might be an interesting, um, maybe representative example of one of these sorts of tools in order to kind of remove, you know, the maybe implicit bias or the other sorts of things that a researcher might bring to, to this sort of study? Yeah, of course. I mean, so we, we actually see that what a researcher can bring to the research process, we don't always think of it as negative, right? Yeah. There's there's sometimes being on an inside, you know, on the inside, uh, being a, a part of the group that you're um, interviewing, that can have some advantages because you know what the issues are, you know what the, you know, um, what the problems might be, you know sort of where to look for the right answers. So that's why in qualitative research, we don't necessarily say you have to completely eradicate the uh, the role of the researcher. You want to use it to the extent that it's useful. On the other hand, you do want to understand, um, you, you don't want to be so blinded by your own perspective that you don't hear what others are saying, especially if it might, um, if they might disagree or have a different conception of reality than you do. Yeah. So one of the things that we do as qualitative researchers is to write, before you begin a research project, we write an identity memo. And in this memo, you um, it's, it's not really a one-time thing. It's kind of more of a process. But you sit down and you write about who you are and what sorts of expectations and biases and experiences you bring to this particular research project. So if you are... Um, researching purpose, it might make sense for you to sit down and think about, well, what does it mean to you to have a purpose in life? And and what is your purpose? And how did you discover it? And and all of these kinds of things are going to shape the way that you interview somebody else about purpose. And so it's really good to have it down on paper, to be really aware of your own um, perspectives so that hopefully you can stay open to um, the possibility that it may be uh, really quite different for somebody else. So this identity memo, and like I said, that's something that we 
revisit throughout the course of the research project so that, um, you know, as you hear new things, you can, you can um, try to really uh, stay open to the possibility that other people's experiences might differ from your own. So the identity memo is one approach. Um, something else we often do is conduct qualitative research in teams. So sometimes it can be helpful to have an insider perspective from maybe one member of the team, but some outside perspectives from other members of the team. Um, we're doing some research now in Liberia, and we're really trying to understand what does positive youth development look like in a Liberian culture. So um, most of us, the members of our team, are not Liberian, um, but we do have some uh, Liberian researchers who are members of the team. And I think having the the, the two perspectives together, we can sort of... Um, uh, bounce ideas off one another and sort of serve as a check for one another. Um, yeah. yeah. So having teams, I think one of the other things we often do are uh, member checks. So again, in quantitative research, we really assume the participant is just a participant. They just provide the source of data. But in qualitative research, we often think of the participant as almost a co-investigator with us. They are the one, they're the experts. They're the ones who understand they have this subjective sense of reality. Um, they're expert in it and we're trying to understand it. So we do things that uh, like member checks, which means at the end of our uh, data collection effort, we might go back to some of our participants and say, I just want to make sure I really understood this correctly. We thought yeah. you said this. And these kind, these member checks are another opportunity for you to um, to really just ensure that you're, you're, you're getting the perspective from your participant and hearing what they're saying and not uh, interpreting it. I mean, you're definitely going to interpret it through your own lens, but, but not so much that you're not hearing what they're, what they're actually saying. So those are a few of the, the strategies that we use. That's great. Um, I like all of those, <laughs> to, to be honest with you. I, I, I never heard about, I had never heard of the, uh, the identity memo before this. Uh -huh. and, I, and I really like the idea of building in a self-reflective process like that, mm -hmm. um, to un understand your own positionality a bit, um, in regards to the research that, that you're doing. And, you know, a, a big part of transdisciplinary research is the idea of moving towards really like a, a community research model. Mm -hmm. And what you were talking about there, you know, I mean, having team members from Liberia and the example that you gave is like, is really, you know, a, a big step in that direction where it's like, mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to be able to, um, you're, you're not going to be able to ensure as well that the research that you're doing within the community is beneficial for that community mm -hmm. um, without having, you know, some, some, I guess, insider knowledge insider knowledge or folks from that community itself taking part in the research. So yeah, um, I, think, I think those are I great think that's examples. That's right. Yeah. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Um, so I would love to transition over a bit now from the more, you know, just general background of psychology as a whole, both in the quantitative and qualitative senses and move more towards positive psychology specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, so from my understanding, positive psychology is a relatively recent development in the field and it was developed, um, and correct me if I'm wrong at any point with this, <laughs> um, <laughs> it was developed to fill a gap, um, in many respects in the field. Um, not necessarily saying that, you know, the field is wrong so much as a lot of previous psychological research hadn't taken into account, um, a whole area of human behavior. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it focused in what I've heard called the disease model, more in terms mm-hmm. of let's, you know, diagnose, let's define disorders, let's measure, classify them, come up with, you know, reliable diagnoses, understand causation, and then see if we can treat or possibly even cure these disorders. Um, that, that, that had kind of left out a huge, huge area of human behavior um, that positive psychology developed to, to study in more depth. Um, could you maybe start by telling us a bit about this, um, this comparison here, um, about the disease model, so that we, and then a bit about you know, what positive psychology did, to, um, did differently um, to help us un- un- understand the latter a bit more? Yeah, that's, um, of course. So historically, I think the the aims of psychology have been to really work with people who are struggling. Um, So people who might be clinically depressed or dealing with um, high, high levels of anxiety. And the goal has really been to, um, to address those shortcomings, to help people to, you know, feel less depressed and to feel less anxious so that they could hopefully, you know, go on and live healthy lives. Um, and I think that uh, in the early 2000s, and, and there were some examples of positive psychology popping up a little bit before this, but but right around 2000, um, Martin Seligman and Mihai Csikszentmihalyi um, published a pretty uh, significant piece in American Psychologist where they introduced this idea of positive psychology. And they really talked about how as psychologists, uh, maybe we're not doing enough just to um, alleviate people's depression and anxiety and other kinds of, um, you know, negative mental states. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe we should be doing more. Um, just because people are not uh, clinically depressed doesn't necessarily mean they're they're living full and healthy, happy lives. And so, as psychologists, they began to wonder if if maybe there wasn't more to be done. And um, so they introduced this idea of positive psychology. And along with that, it's sort of a new view of health. Health isn't just the, um, and actually the World Health Organization adopted this uh, definition, which is kind of cool. Hmm. So it's not just the absence of, you know, negative health uh, issues, but also the presence of, of positive health. Um, and so really that's been sort of the, uh, the goal of positive psychologists is to understand not just how to eradicate neg- negative states, but how to encourage um, positive states of health and well-being. Awesome. So, what are some of the major um, what are some of the major areas that positive psychology focuses on to understand more about this? Well, I think one of the first things that we had to really tackle was what does positive health look like, right? It's pretty easy to identify negative health um, if you have, uh, you know, we have the DSM five and, and um, all of these diagnostic and statistical manuals that help us really categorize and um, recognize and, and diagnose all the different kinds of um, psychological problems that people can can be dealing with. But we really didn't have any sort of, you know, what, what does positive health look like? And so um, early in the study, that was really where the focus was, is trying to identify what does it mean to be um, thriving or to be flourishing or, you know, what do these different uh, terms refer to? 
And so we've had a number of um, psychologists, positive psychologists, who have put forth different um, theories, theoretical frameworks for what it means to be thriving. Um, Some of these have focused, we've got uh, researchers who deal with older adults. And so they've looked at, you know, positive aging. What does it mean to be uh, flourishing, you know, later in the lifespan? Um, there's also a lot of research interested in, in younger people. So there's sort of an area of positive youth development. What does, what does it mean to be, um, you know, thriving as a, as a young person? Mm-hmm. So I think that's really where we started. Um, and then we also did need some new methods because a lot of the, the approaches that we've taken have looked at, you know, if you think about the whole range of human um, functioning, you have people who are sort of deficit in an area, sort of typical in an area, and that's really where we stopped. But of course, you also have people who are really exceptional in an area. So if you look at things like... Um, you know, positive affect, right? Somebody who is deficit would be probably depressed. Somebody who's typical might have some amount of it. But what would somebody look like who is uh, sort of really thriving? It displays lots of positive affect. And that's where this exemplar methodology came in. Um, This is something that um, my colleagues and I, it's not something that we really developed. I mean, this, an exemplar methodology has sort of existed and been used here and there for you know, long before I came along, <laughs> but, um, we really tried to sit down and, and, and better, uh, lay out what it looks like to conduct exemplar, um, studies. And, and in these exemplar studies, we're really interested in that last group, the people who do something really well. So, um, it, it's so, really, f- so what are some of the challenges then in, in measuring or studying that, that, that aren't present? Um, yeah. You're just looking for, I don't know, deficit behaviors. Right. Well, I mean, it's more difficult to use just a random sample. A lot of times you want to look, so we've studied things like bravery. You know, what, what, what does an exemplar of bravery mm-hmm. look like? What does an exemplar of care look like? What does an exemplar of purpose look like? And um, usually if you really want to hone in on those exemplars, you can't use just a random sample. You have to get a good sense of what it is that you're looking for and use some kind of nominated sample, which is again, why I've used more, conducted more qualitative research which tends to rely more on nominated um, samples. And um, so that can make it tough. I think one of the other things is that when you're when you're looking at nominated samples, you often don't have as large of a sample size. So um, there was a study conducted in Canada by some researchers at the University of British Columbia, and they were interested in looking at bravery and care exemplars. And um, as it turns out, the Canadian government actually gives awards for um, uh, bravery uh, and for caring each year. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That so sounds, that sounds like something that would exist. Yeah, exactly. It sounds very <laughs> Canadian, doesn't it? Um, and so they used um, as their criteria for identifying, you know, exemplars of bravery and care. Their sort of criteria was that it had to be somebody who had won one of these awards. Um, and so that's an important thing when you're looking at um, an exemplar sample. You have to have really clear criteria for what constitutes exemplary behavior in mm-hmm. you know whatever construct it is you're trying to study. So, so are these do these um, criteria change given cultural context? Like I, you know, I'm just let's use bra- bravery as an example. I mean, I my sense is kind of the cultural like inner subjective agreements that often exist. I can imagine there being a different picture of bravery in Liberia, for example, than mm-hmm. here, here in the United States or even 
in different groups in the United States. Is, yes. is, is that a challenge as well? I mean, that is definitely a challenge. Yeah, definitely a challenge. And again, with qualitative research, the goal is not, and, and not all of this research, the, this one particular study was actually more quantitative in nature, but a lot of the exemplar studies tend to be more qualitative in nature. And in qualitative studies, because we're working with a nominated sample, we don't usually try to generalize our findings. What we're trying to do is say, you know, people's experiences are going to differ. So this isn't necessarily everybody's experience, but here are what some of these experiences look like. And so, um, yes, you would definitely want to, you know, note that it's only, you know, uh, among individuals gathered from this particular culture and not even just culture, but also time, right? Over time, our conception of what it means to be brave has changed. Um, I think today a big, characteristic of bravery is often people who engage in whistleblower activities. And that Mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, that might not have appeared um, decades, you know, or hundreds of years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think it's constrained by time and by culture and, and, um, and, and by a a variety of of variables. Cool. Um, Yeah. So then I just um, kind of uh, moving from there, it seems like um, another important aspect of positive psychology is giving folks things that they can do to kind of increase these aspects of life, right? So if you want to be happier, if you want to maybe increase the meaning of your life, you can, you know, try this or that um, technique. Um, Can you tell us a bit about some of those, maybe specifically in your own work? And then also how you kind of, you know, given the way that you study with, um, where you're, you're, you're just trying to talk about something that's going on in a specific slice of time and with a specific group of people, how are you able to take that sort of study and then transfer it into, you know, recommendations to, to increase the purpose of your life and thing, things mm-hmm. along those lines? Yeah. So, um, I, I actually consider myself more of a developmental scientist and one of the sort of, um, um, goals of developmental scientists are to uh, describe, explain, and optimize um, well-being. So we try to understand how people, you know, describe what do these positive states look like, explain how do they, how do individuals achieve them, and then optimize. How can we, like you said, um, turn these into practices that other people can use? And I think that's one of the big appeals of positive psychology is that it's not just like we know how you know, something works and we kind of put it up on the shelf and leave it there. We really do try to put it into action. If we understand how people can live healthier, happier, fuller lives, we want to share that information with people who can put it into practice. Um, Very, very practical. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely think it's a... Yeah. uh, I agree because I feel like um, that that's not always where psychology was. There was really a time where the focus was on basic psychology and we just wanted, needed to understand how all mm-hmm. of these things worked. And that was kind of, that was it. Then we were done. <laughs> and yeah. <clears throat> today I think that's changing. And I think there's a much, especially at CGU, that's, that's really, I think one of the things that sort of sets CGU apart, there's a very strong focus on applied research. So taking, taking what we're doing and helping, um, helping to apply it. So with purpose in particular, we've definitely been interested in, um, I mean, we know that individuals who lead a life of purpose report all kinds of 
physical and psychological health benefits. So they're you're happier, they're more hopeful, they're more optimistic. They, um, from a physical health perspective, they have you know better cardiovascular functioning. They sleep better. Um, they live longer lives. So um, I know, right? It's uh, it's use, pretty significant. Uh, I could use a few of those. I think there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, there's some really interesting research too that suggests these aren't just correlation. Uh, they're not. It's not just a, a correlation. It's actually. Um, there's some interesting epigenetic research going on in um, mm. in med schools, and they look at different, uh, you know, uh, genotypes and phenotypes and all of this. But we know that the different ways that you live your life affect the different ways that um, your genes express themselves. And individuals who live their lives lives of lives of purpose tend to have very healthy um, genetic expressions, which is you know, leads to things like better immunofunctioning and, and, um, yeah, yeah, really interesting research going on there. But anyway, so we knew that, uh, leading a life of purpose was a good thing. And then we also knew that it was actually relatively rare. So again, we did those surveys where we were looking at individuals across the lifespan, or at least across the first half of the lifespan and trying to understand, you know, how frequently do people lead lives of purpose? And it's not as frequent as you'd think. Um, Purpose tends to develop in adolescence and into adulthood. And um, I, I think we probably still need some more research to really get our arms around exactly how prevalent it is. But at least the early research in this space suggests only about one in three um, young adults in their 20s reports leading a life of purpose. And so sort of taking these two findings together that um, – you know, leading a life of purpose is a good thing, and yet it's pretty rare. We did start thinking about, well, how could how could we cultivate purpose? What are some steps we could take to, in you know, help individuals discover a purpose for their lives? And um, actually, some of our work in this space got started. <laughs> by accident, which is just the way all good psychological research should go, right? <laughs> but um, we were conducting these uh, inner or surveys, I should say, of purpose. And like I said, we were surveying thousands of young people across the country and trying to understand how, how frequently people reported leading a life of purpose. And then we just randomly selected a subset of those young people to conduct interviews with. And um, it was so interesting to, to conduct these interviews because the young people really enjoyed it. They'd say things like, oh my gosh, that, I said some good stuff in there. Can you send me the recording, <laughs> right? Because we'd record yeah. these, um, these interviews. We had others who would call us up and say, you know, did you ever get a chance to transcribe that? Can you send me the transcription? And we were like, wow, we, we really seem to be hitting a nerve. You know, these we'd ask young people for like 30 minutes of time and they'd be going an hour later, they'd still be talking. And so we wondered, yeah, is it sounds, possible? Yeah, that this interview. It sounds like it, it might even have been a process of self-discovery. Or, you know, they realized things about themselves they, they hadn't put into words before. Exactly. Um, and so, right. So we just started to wonder, is it possible that this interview is a intervention? <laughs> I mean, not an intentional one, but is it making a difference? And we had already planned to conduct a second round of, um, in survey research months later. So at that time we did look at the young people who we had selected to participate in interviews and we compared their purpose scores to the young people who had not participated in the interviews. And lo and behold, we found that, yeah, those young people who participated in this one time, roughly 45 minute interview had significantly higher rates of purpose 
uh, months later. So we realized, yeah, it's it. This is something that that we can cultivate. In mm-hmm. fact, we we did it without meaning to. Um, we also tried to be really reflective on, like, you know, what's going on in this interview that was so powerful, and so we sort of deconstructed it. And um, <clears throat> I think it was the opportunity to really reflect on, you know. A lot of times when we talk, this was research we did with young adults, so adolescents and young adults. And a lot of times in our conversations with adolescents and young adults, we ask much more about the here and now. You know, what are you, what are you doing today? Did you get your homework done this week? What are you doing maybe next week or, or what college are you applying to next semester? But we don't very often engage them in conversations about the long term. You know, what do you really want out of your life? What do you hope to accomplish in your life? And, uh, and why, why is that really important to you? Mm-hmm. And I think those conversations really resonated with young people, um, from a developmental perspective, we know that, you know, adolescents and young adults are really poised to be tackling these kinds of questions. Um, and so I think it was a really developmentally appropriate time to ask them these things and, and, um, and they enjoyed thinking about it and through the process of sort of talking it all out and having us as the, as the interviewers push them a little bit, um, mm-hmm. they, they did come to some conclusions or, or at least start to come to some conclusions that were pretty meaningful to them. Yeah, that, that, that seems to probably be an important aspect of it, that it is an interview and it is someone who's, who's potentially willing to push you more than you might yourself, maybe doing some writing about it or thinking about it or even talking with a friend. Exactly. That's, that's yeah. an important part. Well, and I think one of the things we asked a lot in the interview was the why. You know, you say you want to do, uh, you know, become a teacher, but why? Why is that important mm-hmm. to you? And and I remember this young woman in Indiana and she was saying, well, you know, I, I don't want to be one of those teachers that just clocks in and clocks out. I really want to be one of these teachers that makes a difference in our students' lives. And, you know, why, why? We kept asking. And she's like, you know, as it turns out, my parents went through a bad divorce and I had a teacher who really reached out to me and and this teacher was so wonderful and so helpful. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for all that that she did for me. You know, she was there for me at a time when I really needed her. And I want to be able to be there for, for students um, for my students too, you know, and they're going through tough times. And, um, and, and so those are, that's the kind of pushing that we would give. And I think that it's easy to say, Oh, you want to be a teacher. Okay, great. Done. Right. But, <laughs> but like when you keep pushing, you're like, what, what does matter to me? And might there be other ways in which I could achieve the same goal? Um, but you know, the values, the things that you really value in your life, I think are really the form, the foundation of your, of your of your purpose. And so that's a lot of what we were getting at was really trying to push young people to, to think seriously about what it is they value and what it is they care about. Um, that's, that's great. So what are some of the other, um, if you wanted to just choose a few, what are some of the other like key findings that you've found or that you're in the process or that you, you can talk about, about human purpose? Like what are some of the essential aspects of it? Yeah. Do you want to talk about the interventions that help young, you know, help people discover a purpose for their life or just more sort of the truths about the construct? Um, or both. I'm interested <laughs> in both. So maybe let's do both. Let's do a little bit of both. If we can. Um, okay. Well, I do think one of the interesting things about purpose is, and I think this is a growing area of research, is the role in cycle, in physical health, because it makes sense that leading a life of purpose would make you feel good and that it would help you feel this deep sense of contentedness that you kind of know where you're headed. But I think it's really interesting is the role that it plays in physical health. And of course, this makes sense, right? If you're, if you're you know, mental health is good, your physical health is going to be better. So we know those two are not 
um, divorced from one another. They're, they're connected and they're related to one another. But I think the research that really bears that out is, is pretty powerful because it's sometimes it's easy for people to sort of, oh, this is all fine and well and touchy feely and all of that. But until they see the, the physical health, um, research and then they start to realize, oh, okay, wait, this, this really does make a difference. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in terms of the intervention, we love the idea of the interview, but of course the truth is we can't go around and interview all young people across the country and, you know, help them discover a purpose for their lives. So one of the things that we did was we took the interview and we really tried to translate it into an online tool. And, um, and we took, uh, and, and we, yeah, we tried to recreate basically the experience of the interview in an online tool. And we tested each component of this tool separately, and then we rolled it all up and tested it together. And, and, it, and it turned out it was actually pretty effective. So we have a bunch of, of um, activities that, that we have found uh, through our research really do help young people reflect on what matters most to them. Um, so one of the activities is actually a, a there's a video of Jimmy Fallon. He's a late night talk show host. And um, he's talking about how he fell, he tripped, and he, uh, well, he broke his finger, but it was worse than just a break. He was actually at risk of like losing uh, his finger. And so he was hospitalized for quite some time as they were dealing with this, you know, going through surgeries and all this. And somebody had brought him Victor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. And so he talks in this little three minute YouTube clip about what, you know, what it means to have a purpose in life. And he talks about what his own purpose in life is. And he says, you know, being here in this hospital where everybody's, you know, kind of sad, kind of down, this isn't a really uh, happy place to always be. He said, I realize my purpose is I make people laugh. And, um, and, and it's a, it's a really fun clip because I think it's one that young people can relate to. It's only like three minutes long, but it's a good example <laughs> of modeling, right? He's really modeling yeah. his own purpose in life. And so we have young people watch the clip and then reflect on, you know, what, what is, what is, he talks about it as sort of like a gift, you know, what is, what is your gift? What, do, what are the special talents or skills that you have and how can you put them to work to make a difference in the world around you? Um, one of the other things that um, we do is is um, in this online because we I do think that human interaction is really key to cultivating purpose and in an online setting you you don't necessarily get that so we tried to build in some experiences where students are or the the participants are sort of forced to go interact with other people so one of the things we had them do was to think about the thing that mattered most to them and come up with some sort of symbol for it so maybe what really matters to you is preserving the environment and so maybe the symbol would be a you know a plant or an animal or something or maybe what matters most to you is your religious faith and so some symbol for that might be a you know a cross or some other uh, religious religious symbol, and the idea is that they would they would actually draw this symbol in as a form of a temporary tattoo on their body somewhere that is visible to the outside world, and they're supposed to wear it around for at least a week. And the idea behind that is that people see it and they ask them about it, and so it it, it forces the person to have basically the same conversation where they're sort of explaining their purpose to other people around them. And we found that that was actually pretty powerful. It's just, uh, you know, somebody talked about wearing this symbol to a job interview and, um, and they had an opportunity in this job interview to really talk about something that mattered deeply to them. And, you know, the interviewer enjoyed it because they, they 
got to know them on a, a little deeper level. And the interviewee yeah. um, had this opportunity to again reflect on what it what matters most to her and and um, and why. Um, that's 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 a really unique approach. You're kind of yeah. <laughs> creative, an, right? <laughs> kind of forcing an intervention in the world almost, or like using someone's everyday life and the interactions they have as like, nope, you're going to talk about this. You're going to return back to this. You're going exactly. To this. Yep. And we did we did another one sort of along those same lines where we had them send emails to three adults who know them well, three so mm. they could be coaches, teachers, mentors, family friends. They were supposed to be outside your immediate family though. And they just, these adults were asked in just five minutes or less to answer three questions about the, uh, the young person. Um, what do you think I do particularly well? Um, what do you think I really enjoy doing? And how do you think I'll leave my mark on the world? And so the idea was that, you know, you'd say, um, don't, don't spend too much time thinking about this. I just want to know real quickly what, what you see. But they'd get emails back from friends and family who know them well. And, um, and that could be really illuminating too. You know, sometimes you don't know what your purpose is, but people around you might have a pretty good idea. And um, so we found that that was really effective in helping people to reflect. So lots of little activities and things that we've come up with um, to help people reflect on their purpose. And and some of these do involve other people. Some of them are more uh, solitary. (laughs) Yeah. But I think those are some great examples to give people an idea of what these interventions actually look like. Because when you hear the word intervention, you might not you know, your mind might go all sorts of places, but these, these are super practical. Um, as you said, some are probably self-reflective and others really, you know, um, are relational and, but they're, but they're the sorts of things that, um, help you gain insights about, about yourself in ways that you, you probably exactly. wouldn't do otherwise. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and most of them are pretty, pretty fun. They're pretty, uh, non-threatening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is also perfect for the, you know, well, for folks in general, but definitely right. for that age group too. I mean, right, right. We want people to ensuring. actually give them, a, give them a try. We actually yeah. had this, um, there was an organization out of Berkeley, the Greater Good Science Center, and they had gotten a grant to try to get more of a national conversation going around purpose. So I worked with them a little and encouraged them to, you know, they could approach it through a variety of different age groups. And I said, you know, got to consider young people. <laughs> and, yeah. and I was lucky enough that they took our suggestion. And in the end, they actually decided to do a scholarship. They got uh, money to offer up to uh, $50,000 in college scholarships. And the idea was that the young people would, they completed our online toolkit of, you know, purpose fostering activities. And then they'd write sort of a purpose inspired college essay. And um, essays were selected based on, you know, how, how, um, purposeful they really were. And, and <laughs> the winning essays were given uh, up to $50,000 in college scholarships, wow. which was kind of fun. And yeah, it was neat it. for us because, uh, like I said, you know, historically, a lot of this research that we've done has been kind of put on the shelf. And mm-hmm. this was an opportunity to really see what we were, you know, to to see our research being used and, um, and people benefiting from it, which well, was... I- pretty inspiring. I, I, I think it's great. And I also think the focus on, on young folks is really important too. I mean, there's plenty of research backing up how impactful that time of life is and forming identity. That's right. Um, and, yeah. and if, and if you're interjecting, you know, some, some work to really develop a more robust sense of purpose, or maybe one in one at all, you know, the process of self-discovery. Um, I think this is great work. Um, Thank you. So, 
wrap, wrapping up, I just want to give you the opportunity. I mean, um, are there, is there anything that you haven't had a chance to say any, any kind of takeaways you'd like to, to leave our listeners with about um, either the work you do or um, anything else that we've discussed today? Um, gosh, I can't think of anything really specific. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're interested in this, uh, the work around positive psychology, feel free to reach out. There are lots of resources, um, online and, and in books and, uh, you know, in podcasts and things like that. Um, but I think it's a really inspiring topic to study. I think that, the, you know, the things that we, that we choose to sort of dedicate our lives to for, you know, professionally from a career perspective, they do give us a lens through which we view the world. And yeah. I feel pretty fortunate to have this sort of positive psych lens that I, I view the world through. Um, it's a very, uh, it's an inspiring way to see the world. Yeah. It's a, uh, in comparison to the debt, the, you know, I mean, at least education draws a distinction between a deficit model and a, I mm-hmm. don't want to say an asset model. It seems to, um, if I remember correctly, it mm-hmm. seems to definitely lean more on the on the side of the asset model. And um, folks can find more of your work at the at your adolescent moral development lab website. I'm sure. Um, That's and right. May, and maybe some of these some of these I don't want to say tutorials, but these intervention tools that you've mm-hmm. talked about the the online ones. Um, would they be able to find more information about those on, on that website as well? Yes, they would. The, um, the actual online toolkits are available there for anybody to use for free. Okay. Awesome. Yep. Great. <laughs> Dr. Kendall Bronk, thank you so much for, for visiting the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And for giving us a bit more of an insight into psychology, but also um, significantly into positive psychology and the work you're, you're doing around purpose. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've, uh, I've enjoyed having the uh, opportunity to talk a little bit about, about the work. From Studio B3 at Claremont Graduate University, this is Breaking the Shackles of Time. Thank you so much for listening, and um, uh, we'll see you next time.